Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. Through good times and bad, Trupanion is here for you. The Trupanion policy helps cover the cost of unexpected accidents and illness for your pets. The Trupanion team is still available, even in lockdown, 24-7, to help your pet. They also have a program dedicated to breeders, so you can send your litters home protected. Their breeder support program provides special offers that waive the waiting periods for your buyers. It's absolutely free for you to get started. Just sign up on the link at the website, puredogtalk.com. Don't forget, mention Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am very excited about this conversation. This is something that our guest today is someone I followed on Facebook, someone I've really watched the journey that he's taken with his dogs and with his passion, and so now I get to bring it to you guys. So I'd like to introduce you to Neil Trillo Kaker. Yes? Yes. Close? Yes. <laughs> Pretty good. Neil is obsessed with a breed of dogs called the Caravan Hound. And so we're going to talk about the concept of land race dogs and how they apply in Asiatic sighthounds. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Caravan Hounds and some of Neil's really amazing work finding these dogs that, I mean, we talk about preserving breeds. This is preserving the history of huge chunks of India, correct? So the caravan hound in particular is only found in two little districts of one state in India, which is the state that I'm from originally. Right. So yeah, but there are several other breeds and sighthound breeds spread out all over the country. Okay. I just think this is entirely fascinating. So let's start with the concept of land race. You know, we just had this big scientific publication that was talking about the sled dogs and that those were a land race. Right. So we have sort of a foundation for this. Let's expand on it and give people really a firm understanding of what this means. So my understanding of the concept of land race, as it relates specifically to Asiatic sighthounds, which is what I'm most familiar with, Mm -hmm. is that this type of dog, which we could refer to something similar to a Saluki probably, originated possibly in Mesopotamia or somewhere in Central Asia at one point. And then just through the natural course of human history, kind of spread out to various parts of Asia, and in some cases, North Africa as well, and evolved through selection by the local populace, or the demands of climate and terrain and the local game Mm -hmm. into different breeds or types, however you choose to see it. So for Mm -hmm. example, let's presume, we don't know for sure, but let us presume this Asiatic sighthound type originated in Mesopotamia. Okay. And from there spread into Afghanistan and became Mm -hmm. the type of dog we now refer to as an Afghan hound because they needed more hair. Because of the mountains, because it was cold. Right. And a slightly different structure to work in different terrain Mm -hmm. or, you know, and spread out to North Africa, the Maghreb, Mm -hmm. where it became the slugi. 
So this is my understanding of what a land race is. Okay. Is it something that occurred naturally mm-hmm. because of human history? Right. More than, you know, someone sitting down, for example, like Louis Doberman saying, I'm going to create, create. this breed. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the distinction that I think people kind of have a hard time understanding. Like, we'll use our two breeds, right? Yours are Salukis, mine are German wire hair pointers. German wire hair pointers are definitely man-made versus a land race. Mm-hmm. The foresters of Germany said, I want to have this dog that does everything. I'm going to actively create it. And the people in the Asiatic areas had dogs that helped them bring in dinner. And would you think of it as more of a passive development than an active development of a breed? How do you think about that? I think it varies depending on the location and the population. Like I have heard, I'm not an expert on Azawaks, but I've heard from somebody that has spent a lot of time in Azawaks that the Tuareg in the Sahel bred their dogs to resemble camels, which they value above all else. So therefore you have the standing rectangle shape of an And that's an active thing versus the passive. Right. That is the populace. Like, this is the ideal of beauty for them. Mm -hmm. So they are going to create dogs that resemble the camel. Whereas I would imagine the Bedouin, that is a more passive role because they are going solely on bringing dinner in. Right. Okay. And I think that that's kind of the important distinction between land race and it's a breed of dog is the passive to the active Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in terms of human interaction with it. Would that seem reasonable? Yeah. And I would think that even within a larger spectrum, you know, as various pulls happen to a population, Mm -hmm. dogs become recognizable breeds, right? Like, so one would not, one would hope, confuse an Azawak or an Afghan hound, even as they exist in their native homelands today. I'm not sure how many might exist, but, you know, whatever remains, which is relatively unadulterated, Mm -hmm. one would hope that one would not confuse that with like a Saluki or, you know, a Slugi, because even though in some of those instances, there was not an active human element saying, you know, this is the ideal of beauty that I'm aiming for, just through the course of history, they have diverged. Right. And you were talking a little bit when we were talking about sort of developing this conversation, you were talking about the Silk Road. So I would love to pull in some of that history and talk about how that trade network in the region impacted the development of these land races and then eventually the breeds from which they came. Right. So, I mean, that entire region is very well connected for centuries. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, none of those areas were super not new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is not nouveau riche. <laughs> yeah, there's been a constant exchange throughout that whole area that stretches from Western China all the way through to like Turkey and Greece mm-hmm. and along the Mediterranean coast into North Africa. So because of those strong trade relations, I think there's always been an exchange of gifts and tribute, some of which was dogs and horses and Mm -hmm. several other kinds of livestock. And so that helped the spread. I mean, for example, take the caravan hound, the name caravan hound, it is associated with caravans, you know? And the caravans are what they talk about. I mean, I can remember reading about Afghanistan and the caravans that went through Afghanistan. So Mm -hmm. that is the association, is that traveling trade route. 
Yeah. And I mean, the connections between India and Afghanistan are historically very strong. Right. I mean, there's an entire breed in India that is directly linked to Afghanistan. Interesting. You know, and I'm not super familiar with the Maghreb and the Sahel, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I imagine based on human history, there is definitely a connection between Mm -hmm. those regions and those of the Levant and Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. And you said there's been some study, some actual DNA studies. We're going to put some links in the blog post, but can you kind of give us a little bit of an idea on that? Yeah. So because there's been a controversy, of course, as there always is in anything to do with dogs or life in general. um, (laughs) There's lots of controversy. Yeah. So ever since Slugies and Azawaks kind of burst onto the Western dog show scene, there's been a controversy where Saluki people have wanted to label them. Not all Saluki people, mind you, just A a few have wanted to think of them as just Salukis rather than a breed in its own right. And then it's further complicated by the fact that Azawaks were initially recognized as a Tuareg Slugi, so like a sub-variety of a Slugi, not a breed unto itself, right? Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a whole, like, I mean, in Israel at one point, I've been told, I don't have solid proof, but I've been told that smooth puppies would be registered as Slugis and feathered puppies would be registered as Salukis. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it was various levels of confusion. So there's a lot of association all wrapped around this basic style of the elegant, upright, lean, hard muscled running hound. Right. And so because of that confusion, I mean, I think in Europe, there was a lot more clarity in terms of, okay, this is a Saluki, this is a Slugi. And eventually, this is also an Azawak. Interestingly, the Afghan hounds. Early on in their development, there was that confusion between a Persian greyhound, Afghan greyhound, Arab greyhound, very early on. But that seems the lines were drawn fairly easily early on. Right. With the Slugi and Azawak and Saluki, that kind of dragged on into the 90s. So because of that controversy, you know, a lot of people wanted to get DNA tests on to see if they right. were one breed or various populations of a similar breed right. or entirely different. And people have come up with all kinds of conclusion based on the data that has been derived from these studies. Shocking. Mm. Yeah, some people have interpreted the data as, oh, look, they are all the same thing. Some people have said, oh, no, there's absolutely no relationship. I tend to tittle around and believe, you know, there's probably some kind of relationship considering the very strong human history of these places. Well, and there is a stark resemblance. I mean, you know, as dog aficionados, we can put a slugi and an azawak and a smooth saluki and a feathered saluki all next to each other and say, okay, this is why these are distinct. Mm-hmm. This one's the same. We can do that. But basically, to the untrained eye, they're very difficult to tell apart. Right, right. I imagine for somebody, you know, even a dog person that's oh, not yeah. very in tune with sight hounds and especially Asiatic sighthounds or Afro-Asiatic, if you want to include Azawaks and Slugis in this, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just they cannot see differences. Right. Even in the flesh. I mean, in pictures, it's hard sometimes. But in the flesh, even, I've come across people that are all breed judges and cannot see differences between these three. Well, I mean, I am around and show a lot of sighthounds in my history, and I can look at them and see it, but you have to like think about it. You have to train your eye to it. So you have to assume 
the the basic history is similar. I mean, you just have to. If there was no connection between the peoples in these areas, that would be another thing. But there is a fairly strong connection. Historical, sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's take this concept of the land race, this general style that developed actively and or passively into different breeds, and talk about the caravan hound and its history and its relationship to the part of India from which your family emigrated. Is that right? Yeah. So actually, my own history is that I'm from an urban area. I'm from Bombay. Okay. These dogs are kept in, you know, what used to be a very isolated, kind of lawless part of that state. Sketchy. Yeah. (laughs) And they were the dogs that very poor farmers kept and bandits. Yeah. So my family is mortified that I'm interested in these dogs because this is like, (laughs) you know, so. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, folks. 2020 has, to put it mildly, presented some challenges for all of us. You know the good news? Our patrons' numbers are still growing almost daily. I truly, truly cannot thank all of you enough for your support. It's been overwhelming. And for those of you who've had to reassess your budgets, please know, I totally get it. And I will always be grateful for your belief in this program and the power of great content. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tack box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Our patrons make all of this possible. The funds are specifically designated only for overhead. They literally keep the MP3s rolling. Meanwhile, the patrons-only After Dark Facebook Live and Zoom meetings each month truly have been a fabulous success. Conversation, support, laughter, some education, some mentorship, lots of encouragement, and even, randomly, the occasional adult beverage. So click the link at www.puredogtalk.com and become a patron today. Your small contribution helps make a huge voice for purebred dogs. Now we're going to have a conversation about Indian culture, which I think is fascinating. Right. And talk about the, you know, we're from the good part of town. This is from the bad part of town, right? Yeah. So, okay. So I'll relate it to dogs. So there's three breeds that are from that state of India. Okay. Okay. So there's a caravan hound, which is the dog of the poor man. Okay. The itinerant workers, the gypsies, the bandits, you know, this is their dog. Right. Then there's the term called Pashmi, okay? So that comes from Persian Pasham, which means woolly, soft, silky, like a Pashmina scarf or shawl. Okay. And so that term is used to refer to any feathered or coated sighthound. Okay. And so in that state, we have two different populations, which are distinct breeds with that name. So in the Western part of that state, you have a Saluki. It is an Indian Saluki. Okay. It is indistinguishable from any other Saluki from anywhere else in the breed's range. Okay. 
And then on the eastern side, you have a type of dog which resembles an Aboriginal Afghan hound or a Taigan. And this is because those dogs were brought by mercenaries from Afghanistan and the Northwest Frontier province. Because the Nizam of Hyderabad, he was trying to fight the Marathas who were trying to take over that territory. And so he hired these mercenaries to set up camp along his borders and they brought their dogs. And so when they left, they left these dogs with the village chiefs as like a thank you for letting us camp in your villages. While on the Western side, these skis mostly with trade with the Arabian Peninsula and Persia. And later also the British brought in more Salukis from Mesopotamia. So these Saluki and Afghan type dogs tend to be owned by wealthier people, like landlords mm. and that type of person. Okay. And so they keep these dogs and the poor people keep these caravan hounds and they do not cross traditionally they are not crossed like you know this is like entirely there is a line drawn <laughs> they do not cross the people barely interact the dogs are not right. crossing either <laughs> so. interesting okay i just want to insert a thing here because i say this all the time and yet this conversation is just bringing it into such stark relief for me purebred dogs and the history of purebred dogs is living history oh yeah And talking about the history of your country in this way and all of the interactions of it and how purebred dogs are woven into the fabric of that, to me, that's that's a goosebump thing. I really love that image and the ability to tell that story in that way. It's fascinating once you really delve into it. Mm -hmm. So the caravan hounds from this area as you have discussed, are few and far between. Like, basically not quite extinct, but kind of? It's a sad story, honestly. Yeah, it's very precarious, the situation for the breed. And unfortunately, one would hope that kennel clubs and shows and registries would assist in breed preservation because one has been educated to believe that that is the whole premise of the institution. But unfortunately, in this case, with this breed in that context, that institution in that country has actively been involved in the destruction of original breed type. Wow. Yeah, because one has to understand also the history of Indian people and the psyche and how that played into the destruction of the breed. Because when they were recognized as a breed in 1972, you know, you're coming out of colonialism where... Indians were taught to believe that anything Indian is inherently lesser than. Right. You know, even going to other animals, like when the British got with the Marwadi horses, which is like a a Raj breed of horse, the stallions were all castrated or destroyed and the mares had to be bred to thoroughbreds. Hmm. So there's like a real systematic assault on pride and what is from there, right? Because those horses were a religious symbol almost to those people. Wow. And so, I mean, that's happened throughout, you know, there's been hundreds of years of that. Mm -hmm. So the people that had the breed recognized, they saw the original type and they're like, oh, you know, it's a bony dog. It's not got much hair. They're drab colors. We need to improve them. (laughs) Greyhound was bred in, Whippet was bred in, Salukis were bred in, Borzoi were bred in to try to beautify them. And it's really sad because 
These were people that subscribed to the idea of purebred dogs. I think they came from a good place of trying to make them more attractive, but it's really destructive. You know, it's destroyed the breed. Right. And so when you talk about this, you talk about the caravan hounds that are of the original type. And that if you look carefully, you can see that this particular one has had the influence of, say, a greyhound. And this particular one has not. Mm -hmm. And so you have traveled to India and seen these dogs and found these dogs. And do you have a sense of how many of this if you will, sort of original, quote-unquote, drab type. How many of those exist versus the ones that people have attempted to fancy up? I would say from what I've seen recently, I've been going almost every year for the majority of my life. Pandemic, not so much, but... (laughs) Yeah. Although, you know, I was there in February 2020, just before the lockdown. Are you serious? (laughs) Oh my God. I did not realize that. Yeah. Yeah. I got back in the nick of time. I guess. You'd still be there, man. (laughs) I'd be stuck there. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that the original relatively pure type-y dogs, Mm -hmm. definitely less than 100, probably about 50. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Neil. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Watch This Space Part 2 will be coming up in the next week or so. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 